Let's open the Word of God to the Gospel of John in the 13th chapter. John 13. Look at the first verse of this chapter so that I can make my point quickly about the special character of these five chapters. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. So John 13, 1 begins with our Lord Jesus Christ's great affection for his apostles, and it extended all the way to the end, meaning all the way to Gethsemane, the cross, and his burial. We go to 18.1, and this verse concludes the five chapters. When Jesus had spoken these words, the words of 17, 16, 15, 14, and 13, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And that's the Garden of Gethsemane. So sandwiched between these two verses are five chapters. And these five chapters are the last words of instruction, comfort, direction that Jesus gave to his apostles and their special. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have them. And they're profound in the depth of effort that Jesus went to to comfort his disciples knowing they were going to be alone. In just a few hours, for three days, they'd be alone. And then after he was with them for 40 days, they would be alone permanently until they went to heaven. So these five chapters are excellent material for us. We have made our way to verse 18, where we want to cover verses 18 through 30, if the Lord will bless us, about Judas Iscariot. John chapter 13 and verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, Receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is, to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, 
that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Amen and amen to God's inspired and preserved scriptures for us to know the last hours and minutes of the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a new section in John chapter 13. It was the foot washing that covered the first 17 verses of this chapter. There are a few issues that I just want to brush out of the way because they are only distracting and never helpful. Did Judas Iscariot participate in the Last Supper or not? You don't know, and you can't prove it, because God doesn't care for you to know. Matthew and Mark say he didn't if you to go by the order of their Gospels. Luke says he did if you go by his Gospel. The Lord's Supper isn't even mentioned in John chapter 13. Where in the world did the sop come from? Supper had ended in verse 2. How could you have a piece of bread to dip it in something if supper ended in verse 2? Oh, and the questions people raise, and they are all worthless. And they are distracting to twitted minds. Because what we want is the doctrine and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that Jesus began both to do and to teach. That's what we want. Do not let your flesh worry about a harmony of the Gospels that you are not competent enough to finish. Men have tried for years, and they all differ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke differ. If you trust their paragraphs to be the chronological sequence of events, they differ. Now who do you want to argue with? Because it doesn't matter. In my life, I have seen those that worry about details like this, and they are the least spiritual. I don't want you to worry about details like this, and so I brush them out of the way, and I could take a lot more time and explain to you what is here that creates issues, but we may touch on some of it as we come to those places in the chapter. I want you to care about his life What example did he give us, and how did he treat his apostles, and what doctrine did he give them before he departed out of this world? That's what we want. And see, the Lord is trying to tell us that by having John not even mention the Lord's Supper. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about Judas Iscariot. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us about Peter and Jesus' prophecy that he would deny him and Peter's actual denial of him. But John doesn't even tell us about the Lord's Supper. So where we stick it into this chapter doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if Judas ate the Last Supper with Jesus Christ or not. All churches of Jesus Christ have ate communion with reprobates. It doesn't matter. The tares and the wheat grow up together. They both partake of the Lord's Supper. And the angels, the reapers, in the great day of judgment will separate the two. And so we just leave it there. I want you to be looking at Judas, glory, 
love, and Peter, and determining from those four lessons we're going to get today what good they might have for you. Are you more like Judas, or are you more like Peter? Or are you like all the great mass of Christians in between that are lukewarm belly worshipers? Peter was a great man. And we are not going to let his failure here and recorded in the four Gospels destroy his character and reputation in the kingdom of heaven. He was still Jesus Christ, one of his favorites. Jesus Christ still put him over the other apostles in Acts 1, in Acts 2, in Acts 10, in Acts 11, in Acts 15, in Galatians chapter 2. He gets two epistles with his name attached to it because Jesus forgave him. He went out and wept bitterly. I hope that some of us might leave today, if not weeping bitterly from our eyes, weeping bitterly in our hearts, that we have ever denied or betrayed the Lord Jesus in any way. Those are the lessons that we can get. The lesson of love is important. The harmony of the Gospels has no value. What value will you give it? It cannot help anyone, and you can't accomplish it. There are too many questions, and I thank the Lord for leaving it that way. It's like two or three eunuchs. Why did the Bible tell us that when Jehu rode into Samaria, there looked out to him two or three eunuchs? Was it two eunuchs, or was it three eunuchs? Yes. Thank you. Yes. It was two or three. Does the Lord know whether it was two or whether it was three? Absolutely. Why didn't he write it, whether it was two or three? Because he wants to teach us, among many other places in Scripture, that some details don't matter. And these don't matter. They're a distraction. If you fuss with John 13 as to where the Last Supper fits in, you miss the lessons. You miss the Savior. You miss the Christ. And I don't want you to do that. I don't want to do it. I care about details in the Word of God, I hope second to none, but I don't want to care about details that don't matter, that God's already shown us they don't matter to Him. Or He would have told us. And He would have told us plainly. Here we go. About Judas Iscariot in the 13 verses from verse 18 to verse 30. Jesus opens up this section by saying, I speak not of you all. These are transitional words moving from the, the washing of their feet to the identification of the betrayer, of the traitor, Judas Iscariot. I speak not of you all. He had stated, back there in verse 10, do you remember? Peter said, Lord, wash my hands and my feet, not just my hands and my head, not just my feet. Jesus said, Peter, he that is washed, and they were all washed disciples, needeth not save to wash his feet, because coming from the public bath, your feet would be dirty with open shoes in a dusty climate, which was true, both points were true of them. Peter, he that is washed, needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. You're altogether clean except your feet, and I just took care of them. And ye are clean, but not all. Now the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 11 that that last clause, where he changed pronouns, was about Judas Iscariot. For he knew who should betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. Meaning, 
There are 12 apostles sitting here with me. 11 of you are elect, regenerated children of God, and one of you is a reprobate. He had said of Judas Iscariot in John chapter 6 and verse 7, he is a devil. He told his apostles that. But the apostles did not have good understanding, and they did not remember things that Jesus had said to them, or they wouldn't have had to ask any questions here. But they did, because they didn't have understanding. Jesus continued by calling himself their Lord and Master in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and Master. He had just prior to this verse of verse 18 said in verse 17, If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. But see, all along, he knew that 11 would do them. He knew that he was the Lord and Master of 11 of them. And he knew that 11 were clean spiritually from a salvation standpoint, but one was not. And so he says in verse 18, as he transitions into Judas Iscariot, I speak not of you all. The things that I have just described about kingdom service to me only apply to 11 of you, not to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Jesus knew that he had chosen these 12 and that one of them was a devil. 11 of them were for kingdom roles that were very great. And they would preach the gospel and Gentiles would be converted by their influence. The household of Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian band, would be converted by Peter's ministry. They had great roles in the kingdom and he's going to spend five chapters to encourage them to look forward to those roles that they had. But one of them was not. I know whom I have chosen. If you'll look back at John 6, let's just get the words of the Lord there that are so similar to his words here. John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus has asked his apostles if they're going to leave and go away from him as the huge crowd had. Jesus preached hard doctrine in John chapter 6 until a crowd of thousands had left him because they didn't like his hard doctrine. He said some things that are very difficult to understand. The apostles themselves questioned him about them, but he did it to get rid of seekers who only wanted to fill their bellies with his free meals rather than to follow him as the bread of life. And so he had asked in verse 67 to the 12, will ye also go away? Do you 12 want to leave as well? No one really seems to care about the gospel. Do you want to go away also? And Peter makes a wonderful statement in verse 68 and 69, and we don't want to forget that as we read about Peter in John chapter 13, because Peter's impetuousness does result in some wonderful statements at times. Let's get it here in verse 68. Peter responded to the Lord's dissuasion from the gospel by saying to the Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Amen. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? So that's to the office of apostle for three and a half years. Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot. Okay, back to John 13. So we have a statement there that explains how our Lord meant the words, I know whom I have chosen. I have chosen 12 of you, 11 for service in my kingdom, one to fulfill scripture, who is a devil. And you trust the Lord. I love his word, and I love John 13, and I hope that I can share these things with you. Amen. They're very precious to me, and I want them to be precious to you, in that John gives us a bird's eye view of the last hours 
of Jesus with his apostles that we don't get anywhere else. I know, I speak not of you all, in the first words of verse 18, I know whom I have chosen. I've chosen 11 of you to be my apostles after this event, and I've chosen one of you because you're a devil, and you're going to fulfill scripture that was written of me, that someone that I eat bread with has lifted up his heel against me. And so Jesus said that the scripture may be fulfilled. The scripture has to be fulfilled that there is a traitor among you that will betray me. I've chosen 11 of you to be foundation stones in the church kingdom of Jesus Christ. I've chosen one of you to fulfill the terrible scripture of a traitor like Absalom was to David. Jesus said the scriptures testified of him, and some of the scriptures that testify of Jesus testify of Judas Iscariot betraying him. Psalm 41 is where this quotation comes from. Psalm 109 has 15 verses about Judas Iscariot and how he was not a saved man but was a reprobate. There's 15 verses there that say it very plainly. Zechariah chapter 11 describes the 30 pieces of silver, how they were going to be spent for the potter's field where Judas would eventually be buried after dashing his bowels in a terrible effort of hanging himself across the potter's field. All of that in the word of God that we'll come to at a different time. But that the scripture may be fulfilled. Some of the scriptures talk about our Lord being betrayed. Let's always magnify Scripture. Now I began with Luke 1. Colin followed with Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has 176 independent, individual phrases, verses, clauses about the words of God. It's a wonderful chapter of the Bible. If you don't appreciate it, you don't want to read it because it's so long. But as soon as you appreciate it, you'll slow down reading it because each verse is a wonderful statement about God's words. And so we've had that already this morning, and now we come into this verse here in John 13, 18, where Jesus said, I speak not of you all. The good things that I just mentioned in the first 17 verses do not all apply to all of you. I know whom I've chosen. I have 11 apostles, and one of you is a devil that will betray me to fulfill Scripture. But Jesus fulfilled Scripture. Jesus knew all along that Judas would fulfill Scripture. We want to love the fulfillment of Scripture. If you think or speak contrary to Scripture, the Bible says it is because you have no light in you. All duties found between the covers of the Bible should have our highest esteem with great hatred for opposing opinions. That's Psalm 119 and verse 128 that we love so much. I esteem all thy precepts, concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. So the Lord Jesus Christ, though it took three and a half years of enduring Judas Iscariot, washing Judas's feet, he knew he was a devil and would betray him, but fulfilling scripture was important. Jesus declared God's sovereignty over Judas and the other three gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, Woe to him! that was determined to betray me. It had been better that that man had not been born. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that. It had been better for that man not to have been born. But God chose for him to be born. And God chose him to be the one to betray Jesus Christ. 
And some will ask, wait a minute, if God made him and God chose him for that task, then how is he responsible for his sin? You limit God greatly. You seriously misunderstand the God of the Bible. He isn't limited like you are. Judas did what he did with a full volition of his own active to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't even know his motive for sure. We don't know his motive if it was hatred because Jesus had just rebuked him two days earlier when he objected to Mary spending a bottle worth 300 pence at the Lord's feet. Or if Judas thought that as Jesus had escaped at other times, Jesus would escape this time as well from the Jews, and he could make 30 pieces of silver with really no consequences. We don't know any of that, and it doesn't matter. Whatever it was, Judas did it eagerly, willingly, just like you sin eagerly and willingly for your own motivation, for your own purposes, for your own pleasure, And yet God, if he blinded you, or if he turned you over to Satan, can still hold you accountable because he never forces anyone to sin. But the Bible is filled with him hardening the heart of Pharaoh, hardening the hearts of the kings of the Canaanites, so that they would come in battle against Israel. You know, if they had all sat at home and stayed in their beds, it would have been harder to kill them. This is what the Bible tells us. So God hardened all of their hearts, that though Israel had just defeated the Egyptians at the Red Sea, and they were the greatest nation, and had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, and so forth, these nations still put their armies together, put their weapons on to come against Israel. And the Lord tells us that. Wednesday night, just four days ago, we studied Sennacherib. The Lord used Sennacherib. And Isaiah 10 tells us in detail an answer to the question that I just asked on your behalf. How can God hold someone responsible when it was determined that such a person would do such and such a sin? Because all God has to do is withhold a little bit of grace and the raging inferno of pride inside every one of us can burst out into any kind of a sin. In Sennacherib, it tells us plainly, the only thought he had was to add to his empire. It tells us. He never thought about being the tool of God in chastening Israel. Never crossed his mind. He didn't want to honor God. He didn't want to glorify God. He didn't want to be useful to the Jehovah God of the Israelites. He wanted to expand his empire. But God had other plans. God said, Sennacherib, you have your ambition and I've used it. You are an axe in my hand, and I'm hewing with you. I'm the one holding you. You are simply the axe. You want to add to your empire. I'm using you as a chastening device against my people Israel. You're the saw. He uses four comparisons. You're the saw, and it's my hand that is shaking you. Judas Iscariot, for whatever motivation you had, against the Lord Jesus Christ, it was determined that you would be the one, and all God has to do is let you go, and you would do anything. Any one of us would do anything without the grace of God restraining us. 
David knew the Bible better than Joab. But David said, let's number Israel. 2 Samuel 24, 1, 1 Chronicles 21, 1. God used Satan to help David with the idea. Just step back. With Hezekiah, God gave Hezekiah a 15-year life extension. But then it says that the Lord left him to see what was in his heart. Well, now the Lord knew what was in his heart, but it was for Hezekiah to show what was in his heart. And Hezekiah, when the Lord stepped back and left him, Hezekiah, that great king, invited the ambassadors of Babylon in to the treasury of the house of the Lord to see all the wealth that was in the temple of God, and they came for it under Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible says that Hezekiah did not requite the Lord for his 15 years. He did not repay him the way he should have. All of this is to help explain that the sovereignty of God is in the life of Judas Iscariot. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke state it, though it is not stated here. There's no contradiction in the Bible. John doesn't state what is well stated elsewhere all the time. He wants to add things that weren't put in the other gospel accounts. There was no relief by God's overruling of Judas's sin. Judas should not have been born because Judas made a choice of his own volition, his own will, his own ambition, his own pride to go against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Bible says so much about this. When we get Peter, Peter doesn't understand these things very well at this point, but he will when he's full of the Holy Spirit, so that when he speaks and preaches in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, he tells the Jews that you Jews are wicked, and with wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory, but everything you did was according to the determinate counsel of God. Same with Judas right here. There is nothing that happens in the world that is outside of the dominion and the determination of the purpose of God in the world. He restrains everything he doesn't want to have happen. Because the Bible tells us that as well. Psalm 76 and verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. Okay, and this is all from the words that the scripture may be fulfilled. Fulfilling scripture is important, and Judas Iscariot is the one that fulfilled it. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. This prophecy is from Psalm 41.9, and if you were reading it in Psalm 41, you might easily assign it to Absalom. You might assign it to Ahithophel. But Jesus assigned it to Judas Iscariot. Hidden in the pages of Scripture are many prophecies of Christ we should cherish when the New Testament tells us about them. Eating a meal together is an aspect of close friendship, communion, affection, and trust. Whether it's Abraham and Melchizedek or or David with Mephibosheth at his table or Joseph with his brethren at his table in Egypt or, or the Last Supper right here is a time of affection, intimacy, and loyalty, friendship. And Judas Iscariot though eating bread with the Lord, and most and very specifically eating bread with him, that the Lord's going to dip for him momentarily, lifted up his heel. The lifting up of the heel is a, a, an animal like a horse kicking, or a man kicking, or a man lifting up his heel and using it as a tripping device in wrestling. Just lifting up his heel, 
an act of rebellion against authority. He's lifted up his heel against me. So we have John 13 and verse 18. Verse 19, Now I tell you before it come that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. When is it going to come to pass? In three hours. Later that night. I'm telling you three hours in advance. Because you are going to be 11 very rattled men. You are going to see a mob get their hands on me and take me and handcuff me and lead me away for the first time in your lives. You have witnessed many times before when mobs came after me and I could walk through their midst and they could not touch me. You will be disturbed. But I have told you in advance that one of you is going to betray me. One of you will lead the mob to our hiding place in the Garden of Gethsemane. But lest you be discouraged by it, it's to fulfill Scripture. And I'm telling you three hours in advance so that when it happens, you can say as you run away and regather yourselves together, Oh, the Lord told us that was going to happen. We shouldn't be moved by it. He said Scripture had to be fulfilled, and he told us three hours before it happened. I love the Lord. Amen. And he tells us a great purpose for prophecy. Right. Prophecy is not for speculation. Right. Hal Lindsey wants you to believe that. Tim LaHaye wants you to believe that. And all the people that write prophecy books that sell at Christian bookstores today want you to believe that, that prophecy is for speculation. Where does the United States fit in? Where does the United Nations fit in? Where does President Obama fit in? Oh, it's too late for him now. We've got to move to a new one. Where does President Trump fit in? You know, when I was growing up, it was President Nixon. It was President Kennedy. It was President Johnson. And so they're always speculating, speculating, but that's not what the purpose of prophecy is for. Jesus tells you what prophecy is for. When it comes to pass, you'll know that I told you of it in advance, and you'll know I am he. I am the Messiah of God. So he said that in verse 19. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. And this expression here about the purpose of prophecy is found in other places in John as well. Look at 1429 in the next chapter. Still part of a three-hour discussion. We don't know if it's three hours or four hours or five. What do you want me to say? What would make you more comfortable? Let's vote. Because it doesn't matter. Or the Lord would have told us. Does the Lord know when it's the third hour of the day? Twelfth? Ninth? Sixth? Does he know when it's the eleventh hour of a day? And a man gets hired and gets paid the same wages as a man that worked the full twelve hours? Does the Lord know that in Matthew chapter 20? He knows all that, but he doesn't tell us when it's not needed. 1429, look at the words. I want you to embrace this. This is one of the lessons Jesus taught. John 14, 29, And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Prophecy is for when it is fulfilled. It increases our faith by knowing God. our God told us this in advance. That's 14, 29. Look at 16, 4. John 16, 4. It's all in the same five hours. Or is that going to confuse you now that I've called the same period of time three and five? John 16, 4, But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. 
And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. But now that I'm leaving, I'm going to give you every advantage that I can for you to prosper, though I'm going to leave you. I have been your Lord and Master, and I have taken care of you for three and a half years, but I'm leaving, so I'm telling you a few things in advance so that when they happen, you'll know I'm still with you. I'm still in charge of every event that is happening to you. Most people don't even understand the reason for prophecy, so they want to speculate with it. Who cares if America's in prophecy? What are you going to do about it? How is it going to affect you? Why do you think that America is so important it would be in Bible prophecy? That, that's what really bothers me. America is a little flash in the pan, very late in the world's history. Why do you think that it's so great? We're so far from Israel that... China, uh, Titus is China in Bible prophecy. We can't find it. We can't find America because both nations are too far from Israel. When the Bible uses the word world, it's talking about the nations around, it's the little nation of Israel, the Roman Empire. And so the prophecies like of Daniel and other places are all about the nations right around Israel. The decay of Alexander the Great's empire into the Seleucids, his general, Seleucus, remember, he died at 30 or so, and his empire was divided to his four generals. Seleucus was in the north. Ptolemy was in Egypt. Seleucus was in Syria. They were called the Seleucus Empire, the Ptolemaic Empire of the Ptolemies in Egypt. And they fought against each other. And so there's chapters in the Bible about the king of the north against the king of the south, against the king of the north, against the king of the south. Why, why, why do we have to read about the Seleucids and the Ptolemies? Because there was a little nation right in between Syria and Egypt named... Israel, that's why. All of that was to say, stop speculating with Bible prophecy and use it for why God gave it. So, when a man wrote me yesterday and said, I disagree with you guys for saying that Cyrus and his decree to rebuild Jerusalem is what instituted or initiated the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Well, that's because they haven't read the Bible. I'm sorry, this is why I never finish on time. It's too much, the, the, the word of God is too much fun. Look at Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Here is what they all say. And there's a reason they all say this. Cyrus and his decree to rebuild is not what started the 70 weeks, but it's Artaxerxes. The reason is they are using a corrupt chronology of this period of time that is wrong by 80 years, and it's in all their reference Bibles without exception. It's the chronology of Ptolemy, the Egyptian astrologer, who had very inadequate records and who guessed at the length of the Persian Empire. That's, a, that's for another time. It's a, it's a document on our website. Daniel chapter 9, the last four verses of Daniel 9 are glorious. Verse 24 tells us six things determined that Jesus Christ would accomplish. Verse 25 tells us when the 490 years would start counting. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be, and it says seven weeks and 62 weeks, 
And then there's a 70th week. They're all together. They're 490 years. But it's the commandment to build Jerusalem. Now, these people that want to hold to an Egyptian astrologer rather than the inspired prophet go to the last verses of 2 Chronicles and the first verses of Ezra where it gives Cyrus by name as issuing a decree for his temple to be rebuilt. And they'll say, see, it says temple. It says temple in the last three verses or four verses of of 2 Chronicles and the first four verses of Ezra. It says temple. But look at here. It says it has to be a commandment to build Jerusalem. That's a city. A city and a temple are not the same thing. Turn to Isaiah 45. I had to be in Isaiah 45 for this sermon that you're hearing right now. Isaiah 45. Oh, this is wonderful. This is why we have Bible prophecy. This is to take young men with degrees in finance and help them. Or pharmacy. Isaiah 44. You have been taught, they have not, that Isaiah 41 through 48, eight wonderful chapters, are predominantly about an unnamed figure that is not Jesus. It's Cyrus, the Persian, because he's the one that's going to rescue Israel by delivering them out of Babylon. He's going to overthrow Babylon in one night by having his engineers misdirect the waters of the Euphrates River away from the city, and they marched through the riverbed and took the city in one night, the impregnable city of Babylon, double walls, 60 feet high, four chariots abreast on either wall, one night, because Belshazzar was down there toasting his God with Jehovah's instruments, vessels. Okay, Isaiah 44, look at the last verse. I can't, I can't skip verse 27. That saith to the deep, be dry. What deep? The deep river Euphrates. And I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus. Notice he is named 150 years before he was born. He is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. Not Artaxerxes. Cyrus is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem. Is that a city or a temple? A city. Thou shalt be built. And to the temple. Thy foundation shall be laid. There it is. You want to remember that verse. Then the Lord wants to give you another witness. So you go to the next verse. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, were the loins of Belshazzar loose that night when a hand came out and wrote on the wall, to open before him the two-leaved gates in the river Euphrates so that they were able to march in on that riverbed, and the gates shall not be shut." Verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness, still talking about Cyrus, and I will direct all his ways. Oh, the Lord was with Cyrus the Persian to take the impregnable Babylonian empire. He shall build my city. Brethren, I'm giving you little jewels. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives out of Babylon, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. He wasn't going to be paid to do it. There would be no motivation for him to do it. But as soon as he was in office, he said, The Lord God of heaven hath given me a charge. Now all those of you of his people that want to go back, you're welcome to go back. I'll pay for you to rebuild that place. Anyway, let's get back over to John 13. This wasn't supposed to be a seminar on prophecy. 
But I want you to understand that verse. Why did Jesus bring up Judas and not just let it happen? To fulfill scripture and to comfort his apostles that when it happened, it wouldn't overthrow them. What else is going to go on among us? Are there any more devils among us? No, there's just one. One of you is a devil. John 6, 70. So verse 20 is just precious. Your number one argument that the Bible is the word of God is not because you like it. Is not because you believe it. The number one argument that we have that the Bible is the word of God, a supernatural book, is fulfilled prophecy. There are many, many fulfilled prophecies in natural events. That is why the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that John, that John, Old Testament prophets, I'm ignoring for the moment, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, Peter, mentioned so many times that when it happened in 70 AD, Jesus had said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness, then the end of Jerusalem is going to come. Because it's when prophecy is fulfilled, our God told us about that. Our God told us about the Roman Empire dying, 476 A.D., by the Visigoths, coming back to life in the Holy Roman Empire of the Roman Catholic Church. Our God told us about that. We are not the bit surprised that there were dark ages over Europe that were 1,260 years in length because the book of Daniel chapter 7 and the book of Revelation tells us that. And so they lived with the comfort of seeing it happen, knowing that Scripture was being fulfilled. Your number one argument, if you're ever with somebody who doubts the Word of God, you need to go to the prophecies in the Word of God. And there's many of them. Verse 20. I may have called that verse 20. I meant that it was verse 19. Now I tell you before it come, that when it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Now verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you, you others that are not going to betray me, I want to give you a rule of my kingdom. He had already given them this rule in Matthew chapter 10 when he sent them out to preach the first time. He that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. If you start to get the feelings when you see the mob come and Judas, one of us, one of us becomes a traitor and you see them handcuff me and lead me away for the first time and you're rattled, just remember... Wherever you go and wherever you preach, everyone that receives you receives me. And everyone that receives me receives him that sent me. You have a divine mission. And God will bless and God will punish according to how they respond to your preaching. So don't be rattled. He had already taught them this in Matthew 10 when he sent them out. Because what was their trade? What was their profession before being apostles? Fishermen. They were not preachers, but they were preachers, and they were given a rule about preaching and not worrying. Let's keep going. Verse 21, when Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Terrible announcement. Troubled in spirit. We have already learned in the Gospel of John that Jesus in his human nature could be troubled. God is not troubled, but Jesus was troubled. God is not touched with the feeling of our infirmities. 
But Jesus is touched with the feeling of our infirmities because Jesus lived our life for 33 and a half years on this earth. And the Bible tells us that in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4, that he's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was troubled in spirit. That a man that he had spent three and a half years with was going to betray him in just a few hours. How had he endured it for three and a half years? How had he washed his feet just moments earlier? Because he's giving us a great example. Is there anyone in this church that you can't do something nice for? Please. We want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. He was able to do it with Judas. Though it troubled him. And it's nice to know that about our Savior. You're going to be troubled in your life. You can go to one who was troubled in his life. And he will be able to commiserate with you. He, he will be able to succor you, is the word in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18, which means the word help, succor. <coughs> one of you shall betray me. Verse 22, then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. One of you shall betray me. So there wasn't any thoughts about anyone outside the room. It was the 12 men in the room with the Lord Jesus Christ at the table. So they looked on each other. Who is it? Who, who of us? I mean, we've been with him for three and a half years. None of us would do that. How could one of us do that? You know, when we have to have church judgment to practice New Testament religion and exclude a public sinner from our church, don't be so surprised. They creep in. It's just that most churches don't deal with them. We're going to deal with them. And so we have events like this, sort of like this. We put someone out of our communion. I know just how you feel, buddy. It's okay, Chris. I do know just how he feels. But don't give him what I took. It would light him up like a bulb. They didn't know who he was speaking of. Now we understand the one leaning on Jesus' bosom was John. And John writes very discreetly about the, the apostle that Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. He, but he's the only one that he likes to mention it. But he mentions it very discreetly. And if it was true of you, would you want to mention it? Would you want to say, the Lord, the Lord had a special relationship with me? But he did it discreetly. And so it's John. And the way they ate, reclining. And we're not going to get into that. You would, not, you would not believe what commentaries do. I don't care how they eat. I don't have to reenact. Do you want me to reenact it right now? Do you want me to sit on my legs at an angle with my left elbow on the table? And let's see, who do I want to get up here to sit in front of me? Caleb, you want to get up here in front of me and so that you can recline in front of me and so we can figure out what it means? The right hand was still useful at picking up the food. So it, it wasn't like they're doing anything that would be disgraceful but they were toward each other and leaning against each other a little bit. And so it says that about John. And Peter from across the table wants John. Come on, John. You're right next to him. Ask him, who is it? Who is it? That's what's happening right here. Peter's always wanting to push every issue. John's a willing colleague at times. And John pushes some issues himself. He is a son of thunder, as Jesus named him, when he wanted to call fire down from heaven on a village of the Samaritans. 
That was John in verse 23. Verse 24, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Who's Jesus talking about? Verse 25, he, that's John, then lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. A sop is a piece of bread or something like bread, cake, could even be meat, but it's usually bread. That's why it's called a sop, because it soaks up something. A piece of bread dipped or steeped in water, wine, or something else before you eat it or cook it. So it's a sop. It's a piece of bread dipped in something. And where did the sop come from? And so here we go, but let me just briefly get this out of the way, because it is really worthless. It says in verse 2 of this chapter, and supper being ended. If supper's ended, how is there a sop in Jesus' hand in verse 26? Do you eat, anybody here eat leftovers when a meal's actually, anybody ever done that before? It says in verse 2, supper being ended, and it says in verse 4, he riseth from supper. Let's not worry about it. The Jews had a common meal that they would eat along with the Passover. This is, we know from history. They would eat a common meal in addition to the Passover specific meal. There could have been leftovers from the common meal. It could have been the common meal after the Passover meal or in front of the Passover meal that the meal had ended. It doesn't matter. I don't care. All, you know what I care about? There's a sop in Jesus' hand, and he gives it to Judas Iscariot, and he says in advance to John, I'm going to hand it to the one of the twelve that's going to betray me. That is what matters. It could have been a common meal or food separate from the Passover or the communion. It could be remains from either meal that were eaten separately without the intent. It could have been dessert with the sop being dipped in cream and raspberry puree. Because that's what I would like to do. The important point is that there was a sop. What I'm sharing with you is the trouble that some men go through to complicate the Bible. What we want is Judas Iscariot identified and what's going to happen and how Jesus does it in advance so that when the garden event happens, he told us that was going to happen. It shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't unnerve us. David wrote about it in Psalm 41. Guys, come on, because those 11 were rattled. They ran away and fled. Jesus had said, all of you will be offended of me this night. But he's trying to, put, he's trying to keep them together. And he does a great job, and they are the foundation stones of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that about them. He gave it to Judas. Some of the other accounts, Judas says, is it I? You bet it is, Judas. See, we don't have it here in John. We have it in the other gospel accounts. Verse 27, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. After the sop, Satan entered into him. Now, Satan has already got a hold of Judas Iscariot because in John chapter 6, which is months earlier, Jesus said, he is a devil. Luke 22 tells us, and the other Gospels tell us, not John, it's here, but it's, it's vague, it's obscure. The other Gospels tell us that when Jesus rebuked Judas, when he complained about Mary anointing the feet of Jesus for his burial, by breaking that 300 pence worth, that's, 300, that's, that's day, day wages for a day laborer, 300. 
300 days. That was an expensive bottle, box of ointment. That when it was broken in the feet of Jesus, Judas Iscariot is the one that complained the loudest about it. And Jesus rebuked him in front of them all and said, you're always going to have poor. She's done this for my burial. And what she has done is so good that she is going to be remembered in the gospel, in the preaching of the gospel for all time. And we, we still talk about her. And we had a wonderful time in the first part of John 12 just thinking about Mary doing that and wanting to know how each of us can do something comparable to what Mary did. But Judas was offended. And the gospel, the other gospel accounts tell us that he went out from that moment by Satan's instigation and conspired with the Jews that they needed him to lead them to a place where Jesus would be in private so they could arrest him without a crowd because the people thought too highly of him, they would have had a riot on their hands, and a riot on their hands would have brought the wrath of the Roman governor. So that's all explained in the other Gospels. It's, it's not here. After the stop, Satan entered into him directly for this event. Satan is not always with everyone because he's limited in time and space like an angel. So he had got Judas to go conspire, left him, then entered him, it's time to do it. You say, well, how could he have got there in time? Come on. How slow do you think Satan moves? How quickly do you think Satan knows what's going on by his other devils? They have a kingdom. They have a kingdom with thrones, power, might, dominion, principalities. There are princes involved, and they communicate. Satan entered him. I don't have to explain it. I just tell you that he entered him. Think about the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit enter us at baptism? Faith and baptism. He enters us. Are there commands in the Bible for us to be filled with the Spirit after that? Is the Spirit grieved at times? Does he come at other times with us? Okay, there's an ebb and flow. And I don't want to make the comparison because they're diametrically opposed to each other, but I'm just trying to help you understand that this is not the first time Satan was in Judas Iscariot. Mm, right. Judas Iscariot preached for three and a half years with Jesus and did it so well that no apostles ever su suspected that he was a reprobate. He baptized, he preached, he did all the miracles, he had all the gifts of the Holy Ghost that the other apostles had. But he had a devil. He was a devil. And the devil led him to conspire with the Jews and then entered him because there in front of those 11 to get up from the table was going to take some impetus of ambition. And the devil gave him plenty. But I want you to read what our Lord Jesus Christ said. That thou doest, looking, looking Judas, what you have to do, get to it. Get to it, I'm ready. You want to betray me into the hands of an angry mob in the Garden of Gethsemane? Get to it. That's my Lord. Amen. That is my Lord. Amen. The Bible tells me in the Gospel of Luke that when he knew that it was his time to depart and return to the Father, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Right. Though there were moments where he was troubled in spirit, like here, though in the Garden of Gethsemane he sweat as it were great drops of blood, Though he asked the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet he looked at Judas Iscariot, and they heard him. That thou doest, do quickly. They would put this together in just a few hours. Do you, are you, they did not put it together now, because the Bible tells us they didn't. Right. 
Verse 28, now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. They heard Jesus say, that thou doest, do quickly. This is all going to come rushing back shortly. Because Jesus said back there in verse 19, I've told you this in advance so that when it happens, you'll know that I am he. You'll know that I am the Messiah of God and you're safe. Verse 29, for some of them thought, that is some of the 11 thought, because Judas had the bag, that is he was the treasurer of the apostles, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, because the next day was going to be a Sabbath. This is the 14th, the 15th is a Sabbath, and then there's a whole week long of feasting called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or they thought that he should give something to the poor. It just didn't register with them. He had said, He that eateth bread with me shall lift up his heel against me. He hands the sop to the one he identifies. They just didn't get it, but they would because prophecies for when it's fulfilled. Verse 30, He then having received the sop went immediately out, and it was night. And following Matthew and Mark, we'll put the Lord's Supper after that event. Brethren, before you judge Judas Iscariot too harshly or hypocritically, how much are you, Jesus Christ, outside? It says he went out. He wasn't really part of them. They went out from us and would no doubt have continued with us except they were not of us. How much are you Christ? There are Judases in every church. Look at 2 Corinthians 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5 where the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians and he warns us that we ought to examine ourselves. Let's not judge Judas Iscariot hypocritically. We'll judge him with the Bible. Of course, in our church assemblies, you sit, you sing, you read, you pray, you converse, as if you were Paul himself. But Judas did the same. Only Jesus knew by his divine discernment of spirits, that Judas had a devil. John and Peter asked Jesus in the other gospel accounts, is it I, Lord? Am am I the one that's going to do it? They thought themselves more likely of doing it than Judas Iscariot. If you want to have spiritual understanding, listen to the word of God and think about that fact of three and a half years of daily exchanging and daily working and daily preaching, they did not know. And that's why Jesus taught in the parable of the tares, the tares and the wheat look enough alike that you should not go in and rip out the tares prematurely. Let them expose themselves or wait until the day of judgment. You want to measure by New Testament spiritual fruit. Every church has reprobates. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves. This is not the Lord's Supper verse. (coughs) Examine yourselves. 
whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. The New Testament does not teach anywhere, anytime, the slightest hint of looking back at some decision you made for Jesus. Never. Because that is not the basis of salvation. The basis of salvation is working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2, and bearing the good works that show an evidence of grace in our lives. And so these Corinthians needed to examine themselves whether they were truly Christians, whether ye be in the faith. Now they were all sitting there hearing this epistle read to them. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? There's only two choices in this church of Corinth. You're Christ or you're not Christ. You're God's elect, you're a reprobate. Examine yourselves. It's not something that we cast off in some fatalistic way to the will of God in eternity. We can make our calling and our election sure. Second Peter chapter 1 tells us eight things that we ought to do, starting with faith. Add to your faith virtue, knowledge, godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. And if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. You won't be a reprobate. And so we can't just read John 13 and consign Judas Iscariot to hell, wipe our hands, and go eat lunch. We have to examine ourselves and prove our own selves. Are we like Judas or are we not like Judas? Do we love the Lord Jesus Christ? We would never do anything like that. Let me ask you that. You would not betray the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says that friendship with the world, the world's music, the world's friends, the world's attire, the world's activities, is to be his enemy. I would say that's betraying him. In fact, that verse says that when we befriend the world and are the enemies of God, we are adulterers and adulteresses. Is adultery betraying a spouse? Indeed. And it's, it's listed as spiritual adultery, and that's a spiritual adultery passage. That's not physical adultery. That's spiritual adultery. By befriending the world, you're committing adultery against Christ to whom we're married. And so both Testaments teach us that. Don't just consign Judas to the lake of fire without examining ourselves like Paul's telling us right here. Some presume on God's grace, but we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Would to God you were a Peter or a Judas rather than a lukewarm belly worshiper. Is that a fair thing to say? Is that a proper thing for a man of God to say? That I would that you were a Judas Iscariot or a Peter but not a lukewarm belly worshiper in the middle because Jesus Christ said, I would you were hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's serious. He loves those apostles. He loved those 11. He exposed the one. What's he going to do with us? If you think yourself better than Peter, then come back to the second assembly. Peter was great. We'll have more to say about Peter when we get there. Brethren, we've had one lesson so far, and it's Judas Iscariot. We had prophecy tied into it and other things, but we had Judas Iscariot. We cannot just say, well, I'm, I'm nothing like Judas. 
The Bible says that we're the enemies of God and we're adulterers and adulteresses, and that is the ultimate in betrayal of a spouse when we play with the world and Christ is not first. Judas played 30 pieces of silver, the price of a, of a slave. Price of a slave, Exodus chapter 21. What, where do we play? Lord, have mercy upon us. Yeah. Oh, Peter made, Peter failed, and the Lord knew he was going to fail. And the Lord said, don't worry, Peter, I've prayed for you. Your failure isn't going to result in a loss of your faith. As soon as you get recovered and converted back, strengthen the rest of these brethren and be their leader. Peter's great. But let's, not, let's find ourselves today. There's Judas. There's Peter. Peter was great in the church of Jesus Christ. Judas was the son of perdition and a devil. He has one of the titles given to the popes of Rome, son of perdition, son of destruction. And in the middle are all these belly-worshipping Christians that are lukewarm. There were 11 men that went out from that meeting that night, and they were scared for a little while. But when they got the Holy Ghost in the day of Pentecost, they turned the world upside down. Let's turn our own worlds upside down with the power of Jesus Christ by his Spirit.